Welcome, everyone. What I have for you today is uh, another of my expertly chosen reruns. I, I have some administrative stuff I need to do. It's it's overdue. I've been trying to get it done, and it turns out I just need to take a couple of days away from the show to get it done. So that's what I'm up to. And I got thinking to myself, what do we need to hear right now? If I was going to pull a rerun episode to play, what do we need to hear? And obviously, the primaries are in full swing. All the candidates and their supporters are at each other's throats. And so what do we need to hear in this moment? And what I decided is that we need to hear about what we're really striving for, which is not just beating Donald Trump. It is about the policies that we need to put in place to save ourselves <laughs> and the whole world. And that's what this election is really all about. It's sort of what every election is really all about. And so I, I went back and I found from just about a year ago an in-depth analysis of the Green New Deal, which is a cornerstone policy proposal that absolutely needs to be at the forefront of any Democratic candidate's set of policy proposals. So hopefully this can bring us all together under a, a shared vision, and, and then tomorrow we can go back to slitting each other's throats. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the development of the Green New Deal and its impacts on economics, labor, frontline communities, climate mitigation, and the politics of the possible. Clips today come from The Green News Report, Start Making Sense, The Real News, Mother Jones Magazine, The Laura Flanders Show, Now This News, Jacobin Radio, The Weekly Economics Podcast, Next Economy Now, The Bradcast, and The Zero Hour. The Green New Deal has now moved from vague concept into the development phase. Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York and veteran Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts introduced the official non-binding resolution on Thursday. It's a sweeping and comprehensive roadmap for action on man-made climate change. And Sean Hannity notwithstanding, it is commensurate with the speed and scope that scientists say is necessary to avoid catastrophic and irreversible climate change impacts while also creating millions of jobs. The overarching goal, as condensed by Vox.com environment and energy journalist David Roberts in a recent broadcast, a program to eliminate greenhouse gases from the U.S. economy through vigorous public investment and job creation. Well, that puts it well. Yes, it does. Modeled after President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's successful New Deal during the Great Depression, the U.S. wartime mobilization that helped win World War II, and President John F. Kennedy's successful Moonshot Initiative, the ambitious Green New Deal framework specifically sets a goal of achieving net zero emissions and creating millions of jobs through massive public works investment in upgrading infrastructure, manufacturing, and industry to cut emissions and increase resiliency, cleaning up decades of pollution, 
and ensuring just transition funding for all communities and workers, especially frontline and vulnerable communities, like cleaning up pollution and guaranteeing the pensions of retired coal miners. It calls for a 10-year mobilization effort to get the U.S. on the path to rapid decarbonization to cut the U.S. contribution to global greenhouse gases that cause dangerous man-made climate change. It specifies 12 projects for getting there, including upgrading every U.S. building for maximum energy efficiency and transitioning the U.S. electric grid to 100 percent zero-carbon sources. It also calls for cleaning up decades of pollution, protections for workers, universal health care, and a federal job guarantee for those who want to work on the Green New Deal. It also avoids prescribing or prejudging any specific policies like, say, a carbon tax. Now, contrary to many media reports, nothing in the resolution refers to cars, airplanes, cows, or anything else. For the record, Ocasio-Cortez's staff retracted a mistakenly posted early draft document containing language that is not a part of the official resolution. In a press conference, Ocasio-Cortez answered the question of how to pay for it by pointing to previous major federal expenditures like wars, bank bailouts and the Republicans' trillion-dollar tax cut, while noting that the Green New Deal will generate jobs and a return for taxpayers. This is an investment. You know, for every one dollar that we spend on infrastructure, we get a return on that investment. For every one dollar that we spend on tax cuts, we get less than a dollar back. And so this is about making smart investments. Um, and this is about making investments that actually generate returns and not lying about the fact that they generate returns. They actually generate returns. And of course, extensive research shows that the cost of action on climate change is far, far cheaper than the cost of catastrophe. Extreme weather disasters in the United States in 2018 alone cost the U.S. $100 billion. In 2017, the cost of extreme weather disasters cost $300 billion. The non-binding resolution has garnered the support of more than 60 congressional Democrats in the United States House and Senate and all of the declared 2020 Democratic presidential candidates. But it will not pass as long as Republicans control the United States Senate. That gives the Green New Deal architects less than two years to fill out the framework with concrete legislation. So this isn't so much about saving the world in the next year or two. This is about 2020 and laying out uh, the direction that Democrats wish to go. That is, if the Democratic Party fully comes on board with the Green New Deal. Naomi Klein, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with you again. Well, how would you describe the Green New Deal resolution that was announced by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey? Well, it is a, a sweeping plan to radically transform how we get energy, move ourselves around, live in cities, grow our food. And it puts justice at the center, justice broadly defined as everything from racial justice to making sure no worker is left behind, battling inequality, battling poverty. So it's really about multitasking. It's about understanding that we are in a time of multiple overlapping crises, but we are also on an incredibly tight deadline when it comes to lowering greenhouse gas emissions in time to prevent 
truly catastrophic warming. And that means that if we're going to get emissions down as quickly as we do in order to bring people along with these changes, there have to be benefits in the here and now in terms of the kinds of jobs that are provided uh, and the justice that comes through. You say the Green New Deal is not a question that will be settled through elections alone. What do you mean? Well, in terms of winning the power to introduce a package as ambitious as as is being outlined in the resolution, the only real historical precedent is the original New Deal. And the political dynamics that produced the original New Deal were not a benevolent politician handing it down from up on high from the goodness of his heart. Absolutely, it mattered to have FDR instead of Hoover in power, who was open to these kinds of transformations, but it mattered even more to have an incredibly organized uh, population, which was flexing its muscles uh, in every conceivable way from, in the 1930s, from you know sit-down strikes in, in auto plants to shutting down the ports on the West Coast to shutting down entire cities with general strikes and having you know more radical political voices who were calling for policies more radical than the New Deal, uh, like a truly cooperative economy. So all of that created the context in which FDR was able to sell the New Deal to elites, certainly begrudgingly received by them, but as a compromise because the alternative seemed to be political revolution. So the only way that something like this happens is if there it is accompanied by a huge grassroots mobilization where you know every workplace, every sector, um, every movement is asking, what would a New Deal mean for us? What would it mean for our sector? What would it mean in our workplace? What would it mean for the groups that we represent and really making it their own? And I think one of the really great things about the resolution is that it's a lot more decentralized in terms of how it's proposing to roll out than the original New Deal. It is all about community empowerment and decentralization and calls for uh, this kind of organizing. So, you know, I don't think it's only movements and I don't think it's only politicians. I think it is only both that will make this possible. So uh, it's going to take a hell of a lot of grassroots organizing, uh, mobilizing all of these sectors to really believe that the New Deal is going to make their lives better, and that being coupled with politicians running at every level of government, including including for president, with a promise to enact this on day one. Let me underline what you said, that building political power is about changing the calculus of what is possible. That's really a big obstacle. We saw that in a column by Gail Collins in the New York Times last week. She argued the Green New Deal is way too far-reaching and that we should focus our efforts on uh, more manageable things like building more electric generating capacity from solar and wind. It's not exactly opposing the Green New Deal, but it's certainly not helping. Right. I mean, there is this idea that a more kind of uh, incrementalist or just climate-focused policy that doesn't talk about fighting inequality, that doesn't talk about a huge jobs program, that doesn't talk about health care for all, would make it more sellable. But what's amazing to me is that what's actually stood in the way of strong climate policy in the past has been that, you know, in times of uh, real economic stress, like the ones we've been living in, people consistently rank 
climate, even people who care about climate change or even people who vote Democrat, if you ask them to rank the issues that they care about, climate change will always rank below health care, below jobs. Um, you know, often it ranks last on the list of political priorities. And that's why politicians always feel that it's um, sacrificeable. I mean, Obama did that, right? He, he looked at the polls and he prioritized health care. And, you know, when that led to a huge amount of, of pushback, he really didn't spend any political capital trying to get the totally inadequate cap-and-trade policy through. So this idea that somehow climate change policy is more practical, more pragmatic if it's delinked from economic and social justice is actually not true. Linking it to, these are more popular policies actually. And then the other reason, the other thing that stands in the way when politicians actually do introduce climate policies is often that if they don't prioritize justice, they're actively unjust. And if we want an example of what that looks like, we can look to Emmanuel Macron in France, where Macron, this very neoliberal president, introduces a tax cut for the very, very rich at the same time as he introduces a carbon pricing scheme that increases the cost of life for working people. And lo and behold, then you have an uprising and indeed rioting in the streets with the Gilets Jaunes movement, the Yellow Vest movement, precisely because there is this split where, you know, as, as one of the protesters put it, a split between the politicians who care about the end of the world when we have to care about the end of the month, right? Yeah. So I think the brilliance, really, of a Green New Deal framework is that it doesn't ask people to choose. It says, we have a plan for you to express the fact that actually we all care about the end of the world. We, I mean, we, we all care about uh, the life support systems that we all depend on, but we by necessity also care about the end of the month. So how do we design policies that, that simultaneously lower emissions and lower that economic strain? And that's exactly what they're trying to do. Daniel O'Donnell-Cullen is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where he directs the Socio-Spatial Climate Collaborative. Thank you so much for being here, Daniel. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So as you've sort of already laid out in the Jacobin series uh, so far, the Green New Deal is a pretty big departure from previous sort of, uh, you know, solutions that have been posed to the climate uh, crisis beforehand. Talk about why it's so different uh, and, and why it's so important. Thanks. So I'd start by arguing that the Green New Deal idea in the United States is kind of the biggest development in climate change politics around the world, really, since the Paris Climate Accords. And the reason is, is that for the first time in the U.S., you have uh, proposed legislation, or really a proposed framework for lawmaking that would take years and years and years, that uh, understands that climate change and the economy are fundamentally the same story. There's not a subsector of the economy, which is climate change policy or climate change politics, but they're literally the exact same thing. Uh, this is hugely exciting because once you recognize that, it allows you to do two things. One, by treating climate change and the economy as the same, you can put together a plan that's at the scale of the challenge that we face. We're on the verge of massive runaway climate change. Um, and in order to prevent that, we need to extremely rapidly transform our energy system and other sectors like agriculture. So in order to do that, we really need to understand climate change and economy as a single integrated unit. 
The second upshot of understanding climate change and the economy is the same thing, is that you can achieve a bunch of goals at once. And most specifically, you can redress the sort of savage economic and racial inequalities in this country through a form of climate investment uh, that guarantees jobs, that prioritizes communities that have suffered disinvestment and pollution in the past, um, that combines a you know, really significant increase in social services uh, with an effort to change the way that we basically make a living and live well in this country. Um, but as you've also noted, it does have, um, you know, some some flaws or some shortcomings. Uh, you noted that it doesn't actually directly take on the fossil fuel industry. It calls for net zero emissions, but not an end to new uh, coal and oil and gas projects. It doesn't call to directly phase out. Um, why Why is that an issue? So there's been some discussion of the fact that in this Green New Deal proposal, there's a term net zero. The idea is that... Um, the net amount of emissions should be zero by, by 2030 or shortly thereafter. Uh, and that, therefore, leaves open the possibility that you would still be emitting carbon dioxide, methane, you name it. But thanks to some you know, different kinds of agriculture, reforestation, and so on, you know, if you sub subtracted the, whatever carbon you're emitting from the new ability to kind of suck in carbon, then you would get to zero. So I think, to be honest, this criticism has been overblown. Net zero emissions by 2030 is still an incredibly ambitious target. And if we got there, we would be on track to prevent truly catastrophic warming. The bigger problem with the resolution, in our view at Jacobin and, and many of us in the climate justice community, is that the fossil fuel industry is the number one barrier to climate change, politically. They have bought off most of the Republican Party. They have bought off many members of the Democratic Party. They are a huge industry that stands to lose absolutely everything, and they're going to fight to the death. If you don't take them on, and if you think you can somehow cut a deal with them while wiping them out kind of slowly, I think that's a naive view of how politics work in this country. Uh, there are also critics um, sort of from the other side uh, who have argued that the policy is in some way too uh, far-reaching. Um, Jonathan Chait, of course, in the in New York Magazine says, uh, quote, that people are, quote, using the Green New Deal as a platform to add in unrelated proposals for free college, a job guarantee, and other ideas that motivate progressives. Why is it important that this is so broad? So what the Green New Deal really represents is a complete transformation of the economy, um, an utter overhaul of the energy system, making urban life much more dense, more walkable, more livable, more affordable, uh, changes to agriculture, uh, and we could go on. So in a sense, you have two options. You can either try to make all these changes while leaving the power structure of this country intact and leaving half or more of the country really suffering. Um, and it's not really clear why anybody would go along with that, actually. Or you could take advantage of this opportunity to start to redress some of the massive inequalities of race and social class, gender, and, you know, and, and nationhood, and, and, and on, and so on, um, at the same time. So what I find really remarkable about the kind of centrist wonks attacks on the Green New Deal is that they seem to want to make it a smaller policy that would appeal to fewer people and therefore be less popular. Nothing has pulled in, in, in climate policy as well as the Green New Deal, historically. The Green New Deal, um, you know, weeks ago pulled majority support with Republicans yeah. and extremely high support with Democrats. Why? Because actually, who in this country thinks that there should be more heat waves, more pollution, more tax breaks for billionaires, fewer jobs for people who want to work? Nobody thinks that. And the Green New Deal says, hey, actually, yeah, we're going to make your future safer 
We're also going to give you a job if you don't have one or if you're in danger of losing one. We're going to make sure that you have health care. We're going to make sure that if somebody's pockets get dipped into, it's the pockets of billionaires. That's like extremely popular. Now, all the wonks can see is like a bunch of squabbling in Washington. Um, and so their solution is to create a much narrower policy that would appeal to far fewer people, would bring back the specter that environment and jobs are opposed when they're really not. So um, it, it's quite shocking. Previous climate policies that look more like what the centrist wonks are proposing have already failed. Um, in Washington state, in the last uh, round of elections last year, there was a carbon tax proposal with aggressive climate investments that would have created a lot of jobs. That failed. The fossil fuel industry went crazy. They spent a ton of money. And, um, you know, the proponents weren't able to make the case. Now we finally have an idea that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has brought, which is tackle inequality, tackle climate change at the exact same time. People love it. And suddenly the establishment says, oh, it's too much. Um, I find it somewhat incomprehensible uh, from any perspective, except the perspective that says, I actually don't want anything to change. working on this stuff for a long time. Are you surprised by just how quickly this idea has suddenly become talked about everywhere in Washington right now? It was a surprise, but it also in some ways wasn't. When the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change came out with the report that really we have 12 years left in order for us to really curtail climate change problems or else we're going to see devastating catastrophes, it doesn't shock me that young people will say, ah, hello, let's get it together, people. We got to focus. And so um, it's a great, um, exciting new development, but it also is needed and, and in that way, not necessarily a surprise. So I'm curious, why do you think it's having a moment now? Really, the leadership of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez cannot be understated. That she's coming in just guns blazing and saying, we have to deal with this. And we've we've waited our turn. We've crossed our fingers and hoped that um, previous leadership would do something about it. And no one's doing anything about it. And it's no longer okay to sit on our laurels and think someone else is going to solve this issue. What is it about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez specifically? Because we've had leaders, right, saying this before. We have. I mean, for sure, we've had even our own organization at Green for All, a number of our leaders, including our founder, Van Jones, have pushed on this. We've had President Obama push on this. And I will say, I think it takes all of us to create a chorus. And sometimes the chorus has its ebbs and flows. And it takes someone with the fire, the uncompromising push, um, the heart and um, the leadership of uh, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to really get us to where we are today. So I'm celebrating the chorus that has gotten us here, and I'm I'm cheerleading her leadership um, for pushing us to um, really be heard at this moment. Welcome to our reality, right? I mean, Elizabeth, your reactions to seeing this, to seeing the coverage, great, all these new people out of the woodwork. You've been out of that woodwork for a while. Right. Well, it was mixed. It was, oh, this is really exciting. Um, People have finally discovered that we're in the middle of a crisis and that we have to respond in a big way. 
Um, then it was, okay, what is this? And what does this mean for frontline communities? And um, how are decisions being made? And, um, you know, there's a basic tenet of, of environmental justice that we speak for ourselves, that people of color and frontline communities speak for ourselves. And the idea of, uh, of something being created without uh, frontline communities developing it or creating it or putting in its recommendations was pretty kind of old school. And so, um, but we didn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I know it's a terrible thing to say, but we didn't want to do that. We wanted to see what's the possibility, what's happening here, and how can we shape it moving forward. So what did you do? And so what we did was we uh, consulted with our 68 groups throughout the country and our networks and alliances. We asked them if they had heard about it. Most hadn't. Um, we put together a platform that came from this consultative consultative process. Uh, we shared that with uh, Alexandria Ocasio uh, Coltes, and then we set up a meeting with her. And I think the meeting this went the really well. This is congresswoman from New York, yeah, who is from the New youngest York, ever she's elected Puerto Rican, and got very involved in this. And she's from an EJ community. <coughs> and so we believed that she would understand us, uh, but not just hear us, but feel us, yeah. that she, she understands that this is where we're all coming from. And that we have always been about solutions, and that solutions are local, and that we have been operationalizing those solutions for a really long time. So she but met with you all in her office? We did, just, just, I think it was last week. <laughs> and this morning I had the distinct honor of meeting with representatives from frontline communities and the Climate Justice Alliance to figure out how we can bring uh, Kentucky, how we can bring Native tribes, how we can bring the South Bronx and the direct communities impacted into the space of leadership so they can draft and lead a Green New Deal for the United States. I can't tell you how important and how much of a privilege and an honor it is to meet with the folks on the ground doing the work and being able to uplift their ideas to put them in a position of leadership. Uh, we need to be able to trust that communities can govern themselves and I'm so excited to have heard and and uplift uh, those solutions. So thank you all so much. Who's power? So is there a, a we now? I mean, is this is this a we at, at the table here, Elizabeth? I think we're working on building the, the, the bigger we. Um, and, and what that means is we have to find alignment. There was some language um, in the Green New Deal that was concerning, like carbon sequestration, carbon capture. There were uh, concepts that were really contrary to how we think we need to move away from fossil fuel extraction. And I think that we're working on, we need to build the bigger we. We I mean, have to be doing it. Even the New Deal frame, it has different resonances for different people. So I know a lot of folks uh, who have a warm feeling about FDR and, you know, the last big federal investment, direct investment in a jobs program, um, the New Deal, mm -hmm. uh, st stopped a depression in the light of a war. Uh, but there are a lot of other people who say, wait a minute, didn't cover farm workers, didn't cover domestic workers, mm -hmm. didn't cover people who work for tips. A whole lot of people, disproportionately people of color, disproportionately women of color, got written out. So why are we talking New Deals? Absolutely. And I think that's a history that we have to understand in order to make something much better in this moment. Um, it is, to me, if, if this transition towards a better economy and society doesn't include and doesn't go through racial increasing racial equity and wealth um, and, and obliterating wealth inequality, it is not a Green New Deal. Um, I think we have 
a history in this country of treating people cruelly and differently because of the color of our skin and of po uh, a political elite class that is all too tolerant of um, rampant wealth inequality, both domestically and globally. And that's led to um, communities of color bearing the brunt of both disaster, but also of pollution and extraction. Those frontline communities you're talking about. Climate science is telling us that we're on track for over three degrees Celsius of warming this century. That means millions of deaths. It means billions of people at risk of losing their home to floods and deserts. It will mean refugee crises that dwarf what we're seeing today, and in the future, potentially an uninhabitable planet. This is not something you can put a price on. The Green New Deal is essential to avoid climate catastrophe. It would be worth giving up a lot for that. But here's the thing. For most of us, the Green New Deal will leave us better off economically than we are today. Right now, millions of working-age people are unemployed in this country. Many millions more are underemployed. The labor force participation rate is three points lower than it was a decade ago. That represents an enormous amount of productive labor that is currently going to waste. Productivity growth is also still very slow, and in large part, that is also due to weak demand. Someone needs to spend money to put people to work, to give businesses a reason boost investment and raise productivity. Consumers won't spend money if their incomes are low. Businesses won't invest if there's no one to sell to. That's where government needs to step in. Investing in our economy when no one else can, putting millions of Americans back to work, and raising living standards in the process. That's why we shouldn't think of the Green New Deal as an economic cost. It's actually the solution to our biggest economic problem. But can we pay for it? Easily. The Green New Deal will be funded the same way we paid for the original New Deal, the same way we paid for World War II. Congress will authorize the expenditures, and the Treasury will spend the money. Now, over time, that spending will be financed by some mix of borrowing and higher taxes, especially on the rich. Whether or not we need to raise taxes on the rich to pay for the Green Deal is honestly a bit beside the point. Taxing away extreme concentrations of income and wealth is good for our democracy. As for debt, it's strange to be worrying about that when interest rates are still extremely low by historical standards. If anyone is worried about federal debt, it clearly is not the bond markets. They seem to be saying, please, borrow more. The limit on what we can spend isn't financing, it's the real resources of our economy. And when we see inflation that the Fed can't get up to its target, when we see huge numbers of prime-age people still out of work in a supposedly strong labor market, when we see businesses enjoying record profits, but still slow to find anything to invest in, when we see wage growth barely budget, then it is very clear that we are far from any real limits to our productive capacity. A Green New Deal doesn't mean cutting back on other material needs. It means mobilizing the vast, unused capacity of our economy that is currently going to waste. You also have a, a, a curious piece uh, in the sense, curious in the sense, this is not usually what people uh, write about when they're writing about environmental issues. I mean, there's a sense in which people um, who are concerned with uh, environmental issues are a bit preacherly. Um, they're they're uh, counseling belt tightening. Uh, they they finger wag and make you feel guilty about your consumption habits. Uh, you frame this around uh, an issue of freedom, which is you know, something that one usually associates with the politics of the right. How does how does this uh, fit into a model of freedom? 
Yeah, I think that Corey Robin has been really good on this po- point um, um, over the years of reclaiming the language of freedom for the left, because it is uh, ultimately a left-wing idea. Emancipation is something that requires deep restructuring of power relations in order for the majority of people that are currently living under various oppressive regimes to be free. So I think there's no reason the left should shy away from liberation and emancipation, which have a long history as as tropes and, and, and goals of, of left-wing and radical politics. But I also think that, you know, sort of hearkening back to a few other things I've said and, and that you've asked me, uh, framing in terms of freedom and liberation is something that is um, going to resonate more with your average person that is struggling with um, class oppression, that is struggling with racism, with patriarchy, with all sorts of oppressions on a day-to-day basis. And to sort of make the point very clearly that the type of society that a, a left-wing and kind of radical version of the Green New Deal imagines is a society that is vastly better, more free, more, um, more fun, with more meaningful human relations relationships um, and more sense of autonomy and democratic control over the conditions of our collective existence than the society that we currently have. This proposal has ways of dealing with uh, workers who are going to be displaced by any kind of uh, transition to a post-carbon world, right? Yes, I, you know, the just transition framework, I could have mentioned it earlier as one of the strands in that broader genealogy of where did the Green New Deal come from. So the just transition framework is a is originally a labor proposal, but it's been adopted much more uh, broadly than just organized labor, which is the idea that any transition to a renewable energy system, a zero carbon energy system needs to, uh, you know, center on the people who might be potentially negatively affected by that transition. And, you know, one of those groups of people are coal workers, for example, right? And we can no longer engage in environmentalism that like pits coal workers against the renewable transition, right? We need to think about what are we going to actually do with workers that currently work in extractive industries, and we need to hear their concerns, and we also need to offer viable proposals. And some of this involves learning from other countries like Germany and Spain that are a bit ahead of us in terms of uh, drawing down their coal sectors um, and and retraining and putting those workers in, in other sectors and offering them uh, uh, social security when when needed. Yeah, that's because one of the we- weapons the right uses against any kind of, of post-carbon vision is uh, they're taking your jobs away. And uh, we've got an answer for that. We've got an answer for that in the form of, of a jobs guarantee that is being paired with the Green New Deal, which is not only about workers in extractive sectors, but also more broadly, we have a crisis of people not finding work, not having enough work, not getting by on the work that they have. And there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, and it's not just like building solar panels, but that, that is an important part of it. It's not just that kind of hard hat green job. It's also care work. And I'm talking about education, um, healthcare, childcare, which is stuff that our society needs, but also sectors that are low carbon and will be a key part of, of a more sustainable economy. Um, so we need more of all of that type of work. We also need to restore wetlands. We need like a you know, civilian conservation corps. We need people to do lots of things. And so a job guarantee is absolutely a way to marry kind of the social justice and, and the, the environmental catastrophe work. Uh, the original New Deal has been criticized for uh, its uh, racial and gender biases. It favored white workers, white male workers, and uh, left women and uh, black people, particularly in the South, behind. Um, this Green New Deal is uh, quite the opposite, right? 
It is quite the opposite. Those sectors that I just mentioned that we need to expand um, for a more sustainable economy, uh, the care sectors, um, are overwhelmingly currently uh, female and and women of color that work in those sectors. Um, so I think that sort of dignifying those sectors and expanding them um, is something that clearly has a racial uh, and gender kind of justice component to it. Um, and, and more generally, I think that this speaks to the way that we need to think about class and work on the left, right? The working class is a multiracial working class class. Um, it is a female working class, right? And so um, we need to kind of think broadly and get away from this hard hat kind of um, or, or the single male breadwinner um, uh, type of image of who the working class is. And this was definitely a huge, huge kind of um, problem with the original New Deal, which we address in, in some of our articles and will continue to address. The opposition to the Green New Deal includes not only the climate change deniers, the whole Republican Party, but there are sort of people who are skeptical of the Green New Deal ever becoming law. They say, we've forgotten that politics is the art of the possible. But but you suggest that the sense of what is possible is changing. Well, right. I mean, I think it could be changing. And so I kind of, I sort of understand both sides of this debate, right? I, I understand those Democrats who are, first of all, skeptical that this is possible because it is an absolutely enormous, almost unprecedented task that the proponents of the Green New Deal have set for themselves, right? I mean, I think it's a necessary task, but nobody should fool themselves about the scale of it. And then also just there's a lot of people, and I'm one of them who's grown up in a political environment that's been defined by right-wing backlash. And people aren't wrong to kind of have drawn lessons from the political experiences of their lifetime, which has been one of constantly putting the left on the defensive, sort of one step forward, two steps back. And so I, th I think it's hard to fault people for operating within those parameters. But I also think that, again, in part because both the Trump presidency is such a calamity and then because of the even far greater calamity of climate change, that thinking within the old parameters isn't enough anymore. And the voting population is changing in some dramatic ways that have a lot of bearing on what we think of as possible. Right. And I think in the past, progressives have maybe put a little bit too much stock in demographic inevitability, right? A lot of us have believed that the emerging democratic or the emerging progressive electorate would sort of inevitably carry us forward. And then Trump happened. And, you know, granted, Trump didn't win the popular vote. But nevertheless, we sort of see the our political system places limits on the transformative potential of this emerging electorate. And so I guess the question is whether these demographic changes can eventually overcome things like gerrymandering, overcome things like the small state bias in the Senate and the you know disproportionate power that small states have in the Electoral College. It's becoming increasingly difficult for Republicans to win the popular vote in a presidential election. It's the reason why you see the things that Ari was talking about, you know, the reason why you're seeing restrictions on voting rights and all sorts of efforts to curb democracy. Nevertheless, it's, it's not clear to me how much Republicans can actually 
hold back the tide of generational change, right? I mean, eventually, the young people are going to replace us, and the young people um, are far more progressive than older generations um, are far more inclined to social democracy, and also for obvious reasons are far more um, alarmed about climate change. You know, they have a lot more to lose. Your New York Times colleague, uh, Ross Douthat, noted on the Argument podcast that you do together that virtually every one of the Democratic presidential contenders has pretty much endorsed the Green New Deal, that no leading Democrats in the presidential primaries have distanced themselves from the Green New Deal. That's, I think he's right that that's pretty significant. I think it's astonishing that this idea that was basically kind of cooked up by a group of insurgent progressives in just the last, I think, not even a year, has now become a framework for the entire Democratic Party to think about the future. And, you know, it is just a framework, right? I don't think that every Democratic presidential candidate has signed on to this, even the specifics of the Green New Deal resolution. I think there's there's a lot to kind of legitimately quibble with about some of those specifics and some of the areas of emphases. But I think the power of the idea as a framing device, you can see you can see its power both in the fact that all these Democratic candidates are signing on to it and in the fact that I think even people who oppose it are then sort of putting forward their own version of what a Green New Deal would look like. And, you know, once you're arguing about what the Green New Deal would look like or should look like, the people who've come up with this concept are sort of winning by definition. For all of the good that it did, of course, the New Deal left many people out, um, particularly people who are already marginalized, um, people of color, women. Um, talk about how how that can be achieved and how we can ensure that, you know, people who are, um, as we often say, hit first and worst by the climate crisis are really benefiting from, from these kinds of policies. Right. So this is so important because the New Deal in many ways preserved patriarchal social relations. And I would argue the worst thing that the New Deal did in terms of inequality is that the coalition made a deal between FDR, the liberals around FDR, and the Southern Democrats, who were white supremacists. And essentially, the New Deal hardened Jim Crow. And there are many important ways in which this happened. To me, the most enduring is the housing inequality. Essentially, in the New Deal, in the aftermath of the 30s, and let's say the larger framework of the New Deal, um, it became very easy for white families, middle class and, and working class families, to acquire mortgages and very difficult for black families to do so. And a p- deep, deep segregation was entrenched. All So much of the liberatory potential of the Great Migration ended up turning into momentum for segregation and, and frankly, apartheid. And, and many sociologists um, have called it that. Yeah. So we can't do that again. And it's it's important to note the housing apartheid that came out of the New Deal was a public-private partnership. It was all about government sort of incentives, regulation of, partnership with the real estate industry, um, the mortgage industry, and and so on. And since then, actually, many of the attempts to kind of increase black home ownership have also been public-private partnerships, which scholars like Kianga Yamada-Taylor uh, at Princeton show reproduce white supremacy and reproduce apartheid. So I think a really important lesson from the New Deal when it comes to racial inequality is... You cannot make partnerships with white supremacists, and you cannot make partnerships with a private market 
that is going to play to people's prejudices and that is going to take the quick buck. Um, and you need to have the institutions that provide public goods uh, truly responsive to the organizing of ordinary people. I mean, I can say to you, let's put the most progressive person in charge of, the, of, of some office. And if you believe that that's going to solve every problem, then your theory of change is wrong. <laughs> but if what you have is good people who are brought in and who are subjected relentlessly to pressure from below, from labor unions, from community groups, racial justice movements, and so on, then you can really start to achieve change. And the private-public model for political expediency, where the New Deal tried that and tried that with housing, that was the most disastrous long-term result. So we can't do that again. If the question is, okay, what can we do now to prevent this from occurring, I would say really two very strong elements in the Green New Deal proposal. One, which is explicit, is a jobs guarantee. I think that, scandalously, the discussion of the jobs guarantee has all been about, oh, you're giving jobs to people who don't want to work. Obviously not. It's the opposite. Yeah. It's very clear. A jobs guarantee is for people who want to work. Everybody if you don't want to work. Everybody does want a job. Yeah. yeah. If you don't want a job, you don't go. And, um, and in fact, if you follow up and look at the experts on this, they're very clear. If you show up and you don't do anything, eventually you may be fired. I mean, depending on your, you know, or they'll try to help you, but, you know, the, the system is not set up to be scammed. The system is set up to save this country and to save the people in it. Um, so jobs guarantee provides everyone with a job, but who has trouble getting a job right now? If you have been a felon, if you have simply been incarcerated, if you are a person of color, um, if you are a, a woman who's taking care of her kids and there's like really terrible daycare in this country, you know, the, the populations that have the most trouble getting a job would benefit the most from a job guarantee. Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King firmly believed in a job guarantee as well as a basic minimum income. They thought there was something, no, nothing more fundamental to racial justice than a job guarantee. The second piece, which is in the Green New Deal proposal but is not elaborated enough, in my view, is the idea of a housing guarantee. After Martin Luther King died, there was finally enough political rage and momentum to pass something called the Fair Housing Act, which was a well-intentioned effort to ensure that black uh, people, black families, received actual housing. Um, it has not been sufficiently enforced, and we have to do so much more. But the two pillars, a job guarantee and a housing guarantee, really address some of the core root causes of the black-white you know, racial wealth gap and so many other forms of injustice. Um, the Green New Deal doesn't talk a ton about uh, you know, criminal justice reform, but I think that is certainly in the spirit of these political actors. And you can imagine how much uh, complementary work a jobs and a housing guarantee could do to facilitate criminal justice reform and the complete elimination of mass incarceration and hopefully wind down incarceration in general. Waleed, in response to what we've been discussing about how this might work over here, I know that you're a communications guru. Uh, what advice would you have for us? What's worked for you? What tactical choices have you made when it comes to communicating the uh, GND? Well, I think a, lot, a large portion of that is who Alexandra is. I mean, she is a working class woman of color from the Bronx who does not come from the political establishment or the, their networks. And the idea that a young millennial woman of color would be leading these ideas is so um, it's just you would never see that happen in the United States and U.S. politics. And so her platform, her message is really compelling because she can activate a whole, whole group of people who didn't see themselves engaged in politics, let alone in a fight for against climate change. So, you know, finding leaders, compelling leaders who can authentically speak to their communities, people who don't come from the established networks and then who can 
narrativize the fight in terms of a kind of populist fight, like Alexandria is not afraid of taking on powerful corporate interests in our country, and she's not afraid of even taking on the leadership of her own party. Mm. She has picked open fights with, you know, in a in a kind of moral way with uh, senior leaders of the Democratic Party, and those fights, you know, when they first happened, people thought she was nuts, that it was crazy to conduct a sit-in against the leader of your party one week after moving to Washington. Um, it turned out they were all wrong because climate change and the Green New Deal is the number one issue that Democrats are running on. They're being asked about in Iowa and New Hampshire for the presidential uh, primaries. And so being kind of unafraid and to take risks in that way is also a central part of the message. And then the third piece is just that the war that is being waged against you know corporate interests and conservative forces in our society is is every day. It's it's a constant battle for what the frame is on TV and which articles are being written on this and who what's what's happening on Twitter and what's being trickled down in terms of what communities are hearing on the ground. Because as we all know, people get their news for oftentimes from the media. And so how the issues are being framed on the media is also important. So right now we're in the middle of strategizing to figure out how to take on the Fox News propaganda machine, which has covered, which is Fox News has covered the Green New Deal uh, three times as much as any other mainstream news outlet. And the propaganda war that's mm-hmm. being waged there is something that's difficult to deal with. And so um, yeah, and I, I just think that, you know, having a credible message, have, having a credible messenger and having this ability to wage a constant war that's every day um, and, you know, not back down is, is really key. going to get this Green New Deal written and proposed and created? What, talk a little bit about maybe your, your, your strategic plan, your, your, your theory of change. How, how does this actually happen? <laughs> sure. Yeah. It's no small goal to pass a Green New Deal in this country. And honestly, it's not even going to look I think when we think about what a Green New Deal was, we have to look back at our historical examples. Um, The term Green New Deal came about because it harkens back to a historical example of the New Deal, which was um, a set of policies and programs passed in the FDR administration that really looked to looked to elevate the the working class and the middle class following the Great Depression. Um, And it wasn't just one giant New Deal bill or piece of legislation. It was like a series of of programs that were rolled out over a decade or more of time um, that really started to create a new common sense in America of who government should be for and who we take care of and why. Um, And so in a very similar way, we think that solving the climate crisis is going to involve many pieces of legislation over many decades of time, uh, starting now. And that is going to require, um, in order to make that kind of like massive transformation, we think we need three really, really key ingredients. One is a heck of a lot of people power. So that looks like a a very large, very vocal, very active um, base of people who are just clamoring for a Green New Deal, both at the ballot box, um, who are participating in organizations and movements like Sunrise, um, who are, you know, feeding the move, participating in a whole number of ways. Um, So if you're out there and listening to this, you should join the movement if you haven't already (laughs) at sunrisemovement.org. 
the second ingredient is political power. So we actually, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other leaders like her have been really pushing the conversation about a Green New Deal. But like, truth be told, we need 50 Alexandria Ocasio-Cortezes. We need people who see this issue as theirs, who are championing it, who are sticking their necks out, who are fighting tooth and nail to make it a reality, because that's the way that politics is going to change. Um, and then lastly, we think we need like thousands and thousands of um advocacy, citizen action, mobilization groups, think tanks, uh, economists, uh, electoral organizations, academics, more, um, who are actually coming, business folks, um, who are coming together around this vision for a Green New Deal and who are advocating for it in every part of society. So Sunrise's strategy really focuses on these three pillars that we think we need to pass the Green New Deal. Um, we're working really actively to build the people power side of things. We have, uh, we've exploded in the last year. We have like in the last two months, we've gotten over a hundred new sunrise chapters. So there are 135 sunrise chapters in existence right now. Um, hoping to get that up to like 300 by the end of the year, we're working to get thousands of groups supporting and signed on, um, to advocate for a green new deal. And we have seen almost every major presidential contender on the Democratic side um, embrace to varying degrees a Green New Deal. And so we're going to be pushing those politicians to keep a Green New Deal at the top of their political agenda uh, and be talking about it through all these primary debates and the general election next year and ensure that by 2020, um, the climate crisis and really uh, through a Green New Deal has become one of the top political priorities in our nation. The preamble, you note, establishes that there are uh, two crisis, crises, I guess, that uh, this program is meant to deal with, a climate crisis and an economic crisis of wage stagnation and growing inequality, and that the uh, Green New Deal addresses both. Both of those crises are dealt with at the same time here, and I suspect that's what's going to be left out uh, from the disingenuous uh, critics of this. Why are these two things linked together? Is that out of uh, convenience or because uh, you feel and the authors feel those two ideas uh, work hand in hand? Yeah, I think this really is the key the key to the whole thing here. Um, and the key difference between this and sort of climate plans and climate proposals previous to it, mm -hmm. the democratic strategy up to now has been to let's isolate greenhouse gases and the climate problem from all these other problems in the hopes that if we just strip it so that we're only dealing with carbon, mm -hmm. we can get some bipartisan support, right? And if we start messing with income redistribution or justice concerns or all these other progressive concerns, we'll lose that bipartisan cooperation. So we just need to like focus like a laser on carbon. That was the strategy up until really uh, uh, 2016. Mm -hmm. But but um, the sort of resurgent left sort of democratic socialist movement that AOC is representing is is fundamentally questioning that. Basically, they're saying that the climate crisis is part and parcel of 
basically a, a system of uh, late capitalism that's not working. Mm. <laughs> it's it's heating the planet and it's creating this massive inequality and it has wages stagnating mm-hmm. and you, you know we have uh, child mortality and like on the rise and 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 lifespan on the decline and it's just really they see two things happening they see one this wasteful our <laughs> waste heating the atmosphere and two uh you know people on american streets living you know paycheck to paycheck in this intense stress and insecurity, even as like a handful of billionaires have most of the world's wealth. And to them, that's like, to them, the whole point of the new deal was not just to sort of, you know, build things, mm-hmm. although the things were <laughs> valuable and important and mm-hmm. not just to do things, but to, to put people to work mm-hmm. and get and give the middle class a stake in solving the problem. And that so 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 there, there's sort of two aspects here. One is they're sort of substantively um, bound up together. But another thing is, if you can solve the greatest challenge that's ever faced the species with a program mm-hmm. that creates prosperity and creates jobs and puts people to work and and sort of uh, uh, gets the U.S. back toward good-paying jobs and union-protected jobs and does the same sort of, like, middle-class creation that the original New Deal does, why wouldn't you do those together? Like, what? <laughs> why wouldn't you Why wouldn't you do it all at once? Yeah, it, yeah it's really interesting because uh, you, and you put that right at the top of your article, um, noting that in the past that Democrats have put the, tend to put the focus on technologies and markets specifically, uh, and as you extend that out to the uh, to the original New Deal, yeah, the idea was not to uh, have flood control on the Colorado River or uh, get electricity from the Hoover Dam, but it was part and parcel of a jobs program that ended up giving us these things that we have enjoyed and are happy to have now uh, for generations. But does that make this proposal any easier or or harder to uh, to actually well, pass, David? That's the that's the six million dollar question, isn't it? I mean, the question here is that would be the six trillion dollar question, as Fox News might <laughs> describe it. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah there's a lot of goofy numbers yeah. uh, flying around. Yeah. I mean, the real answer is that no one has any idea how much this would cost, right. or any idea how much growth it would produce, and it's totally like. The idea that oh, it's exactly six trillion through twenty seventy two is right. a bunch of bunch of faux faux <laughs> precision. Um, but anyway, I mean, the politics of this are the central question. Like, you know, I think if you'd asked Dems up until really recently, they would have said yes. You have to have some bipartisan support. You have. There's no other way to get stuff passed mm-hmm. but to try to get bipartisan support. Persuade some of our colleagues. But I feel like with Trump, you know, like. As as many people have said before, Trump is not some brand new thing. He's just sort of the culmination of of the direction of the conservative movement for mm-hmm. decades now. He's kind of like stripped away all remaining pretense mm-hmm. and made it very clear what's going on. And what what it made very clear is there just is no bipartisan cooperation to be had. It's yeah. not coming. It's getting farther away. The more we try, the farther it gets away. And like mm-hmm. environmentalists have been begging begging, watering down policies, watering down their rhetoric, tiptoeing around, you know, echoing this BS, echoing this sort of fiscal responsibility BS, 
that they that they hear on the Washington Post editorial page just trying so hard to lure a few conservatives over and it just isn't happening. So the other you know, so the other take is stop watering down your policy, stop watering down your rhetoric, be upfront and clear about the scale and severity of the problem and the scale of the solutions and offer a solution that engages people and that people can play a role in, get a job from, make money from, like be excited about, mm-hmm. uh, uh, then you make it, then you give it political momentum. And so instead of persuading Republicans to come along, you frighten them <laughs> <laughs> into coming along. You show that this is a giant political snowball that's rolling downhill, gathering, you know, gathering weight gathering momentum, and if you get in the way and push the other way, you'll get crushed. That's how you persuade politicians. Uh, yeah. not, through the sweet, not through the sweet light of reason. It's, it's fear, <laughs> and that's what Dems are going for now. Like We're going to make a, a, a broad, vigorous movement behind this that is strong enough that you will be scared to bucket. I only have one concern about the, the uh, well, I had a couple, but now I only have one remaining concern about the term Green New Deal, which is I don't think it's big enough. I, I, <laughs> you know, first of all, we're talking about planetary crisis, right? I mean, we're talking about like when worlds collide, that old science fiction movie, right? We've all got to get together and build the rocket ship, except I don't want to build a rocket ship. I want to save this place. Um, but it's planetary. And um, and I think the scope of the re-envisioning of society that we need is actually much, much bigger than the Green New Deal. And it's global, right? Because it's, it's the whole planet, although we have to take the lead because we're the primary uh, consumers of of our fragile environment. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's right. There was a good interview um, by some of my colleagues at The Intercept with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez a few weeks ago, um, where she sort of, you know, was talking about the process by which they arrived at this. And um, the Green New Deal was not something they thought would be the sort of public messaging of this program. Um, but news of it kind of kept getting out and it kept resonating. Um, and so eventually they decided to stop writing it and just embrace it. Um, but I but I think that's right. I mean, the Green New Deal um, references the New Deal in part because it's the one of the best reference points we have. Um, but in reality, you know, given just how vast these changes need to be, um, you know, the, the, the technically accurate uh, phrasing, if, if we were to, you know, pile on a bunch of historical reference points would be um, the New Deal and the World War II mobilization and the moon landing and the Marshall Plan um, and right. probably, you know, six other things if right. we wanted right. to try and approach um, the scale of what's needed. Um, so I think, you know, I, 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 there are many reasons. I think that the, uh, the New Deal itself was flawed. Um, and, and I think the folks who are pushing for the Green New Deal are, are very cognizant of that. Um, but, you know, I, I uh, I think it's true that the New Deal is not uh, not not quite the the scale that we're looking for. It's it's actually much bigger than that. Um, but 
you know, people seem to like it. And so uh, about 80, uh, the poll came out, a poll came out today saying that about 80% of, of uh, the voting public is supportive of the program's envisioned in a Green New Deal. Um, and so, you know, I think if the, if the framing works, then, then uh, I think it's, you know, that's what it will be. Um, but certainly if somebody came up with some kind of other, other really resonant framing, <laughs> I don't think anybody would be opposed, but that seems to be kind of what we're working with right now. And, and I think it's, you know, useful for, for a lot of reasons. Well, it also maybe is less intimidating than planetary crisis response. Yes. Um, but it, yeah. it's also, and I, I was thinking about it as you answered, you know, what brought to mind, what your answer brought to mind is it's, it's, it's also, it's positive. It, mm-hmm. It's forward thinking in a positive way. You know, I've talked to a lot of climate scientists and climate activists and often ask them, you know, how do you personally stay positive? How do we prevent others from falling into despair as as they come to understand the magnitude of the crisis? And, uh, you know, what I like about it, and I was, uh, and I only realized it in hearing your explanation, is that this is a very positive vision of the future. This isn't just saying, oh, this horrible thing is going to happen, let's mitigate. It's saying this horrible thing is happening in our response to it. We can build and then inhabit a better world than the one we live in today. We've just heard clips today, starting with the Green News report laying out what you need to know about the proposed Green New Deal. Start Making Sense spoke with Naomi Klein about fighting neoliberalism and focusing on the frontline communities. The Real News talked with Daniel Cohen about the connection between economics and the climate. Mother Jones explained the importance of the leadership of AOC. Laura Flanders spoke to an activist about her work to focus frontline communities. Now This News explained how we'll pay for the Green New Deal. Jackman Radio discussed the importance of a just transition for labor into the next economy. Start Making Sense discussed the changing politics of the possible. The Real News continued their talk with Daniel Cohen, who explained the history of racism in the original New Deal that must not be repeated. The Weekly Economics podcast highlighted the benefits of the bravery that AOC showed, who went against conventional wisdom and managed to change the entire conversation. Next Economy Now discussed how something like the Green New Deal gets passed into law. The broadcast spoke with David Roberts about how counterproductive it is to try to craft policies with the hopes of convincing Republicans to vote for them. And finally, we just heard the Zero Hour discussing the benefits of focusing on the positive future we want to build. Now, a quick note on activism. European youth, inspired by Swedish teen climate activist Greta Thunberg, have been marching in the streets instead of attending school to raise their voices about the urgency of climate change. Inspired by that movement, the Youth of America will be holding a youth climate strike this Friday, March 15th. Rallies will be held in cities and state capitals around the country. They have a list of demands, which includes passage of a Green New Deal for an equitable transition from fossil fuels and a halt on any new fossil fuel infrastructure projects. No matter your age, if you can make it out to a rally near you to show your support, please do. We've included the information and links you need for details in the Take Action section of the show notes. 
Now, members will be getting a bonus episode. There will be some bonus clips and definitely some continued discussion of the politics of the election. To hear all of that and all of our bonus content, sign up as a full member on Patreon at the $6 level. Though, if that's too steep for you, consider getting the whole show ad-free for only 2 bucks a month. And remember that our weekly poll to help choose the topics we cover each week is free to everyone. You can simply follow the show on Patreon, no financials involved, and take part in the poll each weekend. Visit patreon.com slash bestofleft for all the details. Of course, you can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen. And now, believe it or not, I have one more bonus clip for you. We'll be getting back to voicemails in the next episode, but I thought this media criticism around the Green New Deal from Vox was really important. It's called Why You Still Don't Understand What's in the Green New Deal, which is less true for you than the average news consumer after hearing today's episode. But It's a good lesson anyway. Democrats in Congress have introduced a proposal called the Green New Deal, a plan to tackle climate change by overhauling our transportation systems, upgrading our power grids, and shifting to clean energy like wind and solar. There's a lot of cool stuff in here, but I am not an energy policy expert, so I have questions. How would these ideas work in practice? How quickly could we get them done? Are they enough to avoid the impending heat death of the planet? So to find the answers, I did what every American does when they want to know more about public policy. I tried to watch the news. The so-called Green New Deal. Why do those three words create such anger from Republicans and even some anxiety among Democrats? Even House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had concerns. Republicans aim to make the Green New Deal a key 2020 campaign issue. You say Democrats are in a way helping Donald Trump. Green New Deal is going to be a flashpoint. Did Democrats give Republicans a huge 2020 gift? The Republicans see it as a key to victory for them. Is it? God damn it. I have watched hours of segments about the Green New Deal, and none of them actually explained how it might work. Instead, they focused on the politics. Is it gonna pass? Does Pelosi like it? What did Trump tweet about it? Everything except, is it a good idea? Are you concerned the perception of the Democratic Party is gonna move too far to the left? Turns out there's a name for this type of news coverage. It's called tactical framing, and it's making us all too cynical to solve big problems before it's too late. This Sunday, the Democratic divide. Some progressives are pushing hard for the Green New Deal, but other Democrats worry they're being impractical. Is there a risk that Democrats maybe overplay their hand, rile up the Republican base, and you say, look, socialism, and, and you know some of these unrealistic uh, ideas? Tactical framing sounds like when you crop your problem areas out of a Tinder photo. Or video. Or video. But it's actually an approach to news coverage that focuses on strategy over substance. So instead of asking, is this new policy proposal a good idea, Tactical Framing asks, is it popular? Can it pass? How will it play in the next election? The discussion is focused on the players and the implications for them and their political careers, not the policy or its capacity to solve a problem. Kathleen Hall Jameson coined the phrase tactical framing, and she argues that this obsession with strategy is making it hard for us to understand big policy ideas. Ask yourself how much of the coverage of the Green New Deal has told you what specifically is in it. Other Republicans said the plan sounded more like communist economic doctrine. You probably have no idea what the Green New Deal is. You probably have some sense that it has to do with climate, climate change, but you probably don't know much beyond that. It is hard to argue with her. Look at some of the headlines from the Green New Deal debate. Is the Green New Deal smart politics for Democrats? 
Green New Deal divides Democrats on climate change. Seven reasons Democrats won't pass a Green New Deal. We're talking about the fate of the human race here, but the focus is still on the politics. Could the fight over this plan divide the Democratic Party? Well, Republicans succeeded painting it as an unrealistic boondoggle. Notice when you're saying that, you're not asking, well, what is the problem they're trying to address? Is this a viable solution? This framing makes us less informed, but it also makes us more cynical. Jameson and her research partner ran an experiment where they gave people three different types of news stories about a Philadelphia mayoral race. Don't tune out, I will make this quick. The first group got stories that focused on the issues. What problems were the candidates trying to solve and how did they propose to fix those problems? The second group got stories that focused on tactics, how the candidates were trying to win over voters. And the third got a mix, stories that started with a tactical frame and then discussed substance. Their findings were woof. In the second and third groups, the ones who got tactical framing, the news had activated their cynicism. They were more likely than the first group to say that the candidates were promising things they couldn't deliver or that the situation was hopeless anyway. They were also less likely to remember basic information about the policy proposals, even if what they saw included real policy analysis. We find that even with that good information there, the public's less likely to learn it because the tactical frame creates a lens on it that says they're not actually going to do it anyway. This is really all about politics. Now trust your political instincts based on your ideology. Jameson and her research partner published a book about their findings called The Spiral of Cynicism, which is surprisingly not a book about my dating life. In it, they argue that this cynicism lingers even after the tactical framing is gone. A few days after the experiment, the participants were asked to react to an excerpt from a debate between the candidates. But the ones who had been exposed to tactical framing still reacted cynically. And what that said to us was that the stimulus in news was so strong that when you got no more cues to be cynical, to be tactical, nonetheless, you were seeing the race through that lens. Now, maybe your reaction is... So what? Of course watching the news makes you cynical. Congress is too gridlocked to get anything done. Hopelessness is the correct response. But tactical framing makes it harder to break that gridlock by causing us to look at policy through a partisan lens. Most of the time we're not partisans. I know that sounds surprising, but most of the time we're not. But I can activate my sense of my partisanship and the partisanship of an audience by focusing on a frame that makes that more important. A huge amount of the coverage of the Green New Deal has focused on how Republicans might gain an advantage with voters by attacking it in 2020. The Republicans can use this as a weapon. If you look at the political implications, it is easy to see why Republicans see advantage in this. And all of that might be true, but it also begs the question. If the only thing voters know about a bill is that Republicans hate it and Democrats love it. The Republicans painting this as unworkable socialism. Loony, socialist fever dream. They're more likely to react to that bill along party lines. In an environment in which news covers things through a political lens, Republicans versus Democrats, left versus right, it makes it harder for people who might be trying to find common ground in the middle. That tactical frame ends up becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's covered through a partisan lens, so we react through a partisan lens, which makes partisanship the only thing that matters. It makes us political analysts, it makes us pundits, but it doesn't make us very good voters. This exact thing happened on Meet the Press a few weekends ago. Trump had tweeted a bullshit claim that the Green New Deal would somehow ban cars, cows, and the military. How would you ban a cow? This would have been a great chance to explain what the Green New Deal actually does. To let voters decide for themselves if upgrading our power grid or modernizing our transportation systems is a good idea. But Chuck Todd wanted to talk about 2020. Uh, David, obviously the president's team sees a re-election opening. Oh yeah, I mean, it's huge. And it's a real big pothole, I think, for the Democrats. And then you've got Donald Trump and the Make America Great Again slogan against the way he brands it, Make America Socialist for the first time. That is powerful, especially with those white, middle-class, blue-collar Democrats. 
a lot of Republicans and moderate Democrats might actually like what's in this thing. But we'll never know because the batshit segment on TV is telling them this is a debate about socialism. It was yes we can, but I'm wondering if now it's yes we can become a socialist country. And I know that sounds alarmist. I have met the press and I was deeply disappointed. You can't smoke in here. Look, maybe things are hopeless. Maybe we're too angry and divided to stop the planet from overheating. We won't actually know that until people understand what our options are, until we're given a chance to judge solutions on their merit rather than their political popularity. If we set up a coverage structure that minimizes the likelihood that the public will actually understand enough about the substance to register informed opinion, we minimize the likelihood that it will pass at all. The point of political journalism should be to snap us out of our cynicism, to remind us of the magnitude of the problems we face. Most people who are thinking about their children right now, I'm sorry I'm getting emotional, but this is an emergency in this country. It's an emergency on this planet. And to teach us what our options might be. Is the new Green Deal going to solve the problem? We can't say it's too aspirational, it's the planet. That's a really important conversation. Our planet depends on it, but it's one that gets shut down every time a newsroom decides to focus on tactics. What you're seeing though, I mean, this is the pull of the 2020 Democratic primary process. I mean, this is where it's headed. So let that be a lesson to all of you. Friends, don't let friends watch cable news. Now, just one last thing. I want to tease the bonus episode I'm going to do because I'm going to make it free to everyone. Special occasion. I'm continuing a conversation that started on the main show. So anyone who wants to hear it, I want you to be able to hear it. And especially the person who called in and I'm responding to, I want them to be able to hear it. But I'm I'm going to take this conversation to a side room, if you will. I'm not going to put it in the main podcast feed that'll go to everyone automatically, but if you are interested in it, I want you to be able to hear it. So we've been going back and forth a bit. Uh, People have been calling in or or writing, talking about the sort of the the age-old Hillary-Bernie dynamics and, and the dynamics of sexism in either Bernie's campaign or more specifically in his supporters. So To refresh everyone, we're going back several weeks now, Jason from Chicago called in and gave gave a little rant on the sexism of Bernie supporters, and my response, which, to be honest, I thought was pretty good, was to explain how, of course, all of Bernie supporters are sexist because everyone is sexist, and that, uh, you know, when he ran against a female candidate— the sexism inherent in his supporters was exacerbated. None of this was surprising to me. And the next person we heard from was John, who was another Clinton supporter who was very appreciative of Jason's comments, but also appreciative of mine. And he commented, uh, among other things, that from a book he read that's very heavy in data. It's called Identity Crisis. Uh, It's very, you know, it's a dissection of the 2016 election, very heavy on data, said that the researchers actually didn't find sexism that was specific to Bernie Sanders supporters, that they, they weren't actually that much different from the general population. And so, you know, I thought, okay, cool. Like, we've had a good conversation. We explained sexism. Now we're done. I was honestly a little surprised to hear that the original caller, Jason, didn't actually enjoy my response very much, and he had this in part to say. I was really disappointed with the response 
And, you know, I, I agree with your response that everyone is sexist and everyone has to view things through a lens of their own biases. And I would, you know, I'm not calling myself the arbiter of sexism, but um, yeah, you wouldn't really use that argument for if I called and I specifically pointed out various Republican lawmakers and their obvious sexism and the, the systemic and individual problems, you wouldn't say, well, everybody is sexist. And ultimately, there's not really a problem here. And he goes on. But in short, he's not buying it. Uh, as, as part of his message, he did say, look, you, you don't have to play this whole thing. I, you don't have to have a back and forth with one listener who happens to disagree with you. Just wanted to let you know my thoughts. And I, I appreciate that. So uh, I'm going to split the difference. Let's take this offline. We'll make a bonus show. Anyone who wants to hear can hear it. You just go to patreon.com slash best of left. You'll be able to see it as a public post there. And, uh, and of course, all the members will get it uh, downloaded automatically in their members podcast feed. So uh, that conversation will continue, you know, at greater length in, in the bonus section. And for the rest of you, that is it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Best of the Left.